knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. everyone thanks for listening to the western hunting hub podcast hey i just want you to do something real quick for me before we get rolling with this interview if you would on instagram jump over to hunt az and check out that instagram page my buddy ryan is doing his due diligence to try and combat something that's going to fly under the radar but we're going to try not to make it fly under the radar Uh, There's an attack there on basically all predator hunting. Sounds like the lions and the the bears and shoot, one other species. Um, Sorry, I watched it a couple times and still didn't get my facts straight. But anyway, get over there to uh, take a look at uh, what's going on there with the antis, what they're doing now. So another big attack. We've lost quite a few things. Ryan really summed this up pretty good. Utah losing their trail cameras, Arizona losing their trail cameras, Washington losing quite a bit of stuff, California's lost tons of stuff. So uh, it's even though these are western states where you think that, not California, but western states where you think yeah, they're decently conservative in some parts, or uh, there's still lots of attacks going on. Washington, obviously, and Arizona are not always the most conservative states, but anyway. Uh, there is uh, definitely some attacks going on in those states. And even if you do not hunt in those states, don't make it not your problem because that's a foothold that the antis can get and they continue to climb the ladder, make their way to the next state, to the next problem, till mountain lion hunting is no longer and bear hunting is no longer. So uh, I really like to do both and would like to continue on. And I would like my hunting brothers and sisters down in, in Arizona to continue that as well. So make sure you do your due diligence and uh, send the quick email. I believe Ryan's got a link there. Just watch that and uh, um, we'll give you directions on what to do on that. Or do a little Googling. It may be a little tough to find. I would think it's starting to get a little little air to it. Uh, so you should be able to find something. But uh, just so you know, that's an issue going on. And it needs some attention because the louder voices are the ones that uh, typically can can really cause some damage. So even if it's not the majority that are liking that idea or wanting that idea, it's the louder voices. And oftentimes the louder voices in commission meetings are not always the hunters. It can be the, the antis. And it is a notorious thing for hunters to not show up to commission meetings or, or to... Uh, 
speak their their voice during the listening periods that the commissions go through. So you need to give that a little attention and check that out. Again, that's Hunt AZ on Instagram. Go check that out and see what Ryan is is up to with with combating that. All right, Justin, thanks so much for jumping on the podcast today. And uh, first, I'd like you to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about what you do currently, but it also sounds like you've got uh, uh, a few things that you've been doing. You've been involved in the the hunting world for for some time so uh thanks for for being on the phone with me and let's let's hear what you got to say yeah clint thanks for having me man um i live in missoula montana and um you know like a lot of folks out here we juggle a few different hats i uh i work as a fly fishing guide during our guide season um my wife and i have a uh, an online fly company where the North American distributor for a fly rod brand based out of uh, New Zealand huh. uh, called composite developments. And our company is called CD fishing USA. And on top of that, I uh, do some freelance magazine writing primarily for bugle which is the Elk Foundation's publication. Yep. And then have written for, you know, a number of regional publications as well over the years. Sure. Um, prior to that, I worked as an outdoor television producer for uh, the Sportsman Channel for about a decade. So I produced fly fishing shows, hunting shows, um, and it was a really cool job. I got to travel to a lot of places, met a lot of really interesting people, had a lot of fun. So that's kind of what I did in my 30s. Um, we have two children now. So I stepped away from that about 2017 once uh, this opportunity to work with this fly rod brand came up and um, transitioned into into what we're doing now, which is which is, uh, you know, retail and distribution are, are rods and reels. We sell both online, as I mentioned, and then through a growing network of dealers. Um, and then my wife and I have a podcast called the February room, which is a fly fishing centric podcast, um, on the waypoint podcast network. Awesome. So, yeah, so that's kind of the gist. Um, I'm a lifelong hunter. I grew up in Oregon, my dad was an avid hunter. We hunted elk every year. We hunted uh, upland birds a lot, um, mule deer, um, turkeys. And then I moved to Montana permanently in 2005. And, you know, since I've been out here, I've been able to take advantage of the, of the great public land opportunities that Montana offers. Antelope, elk, whitetail, mule deer, upland birds. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, sounds like you got yeah. got some good experience and um, found yourself in a in an avenue of of your passion is what it sounds like and got to are getting to to do some fun stuff. Uh, you you made me think of something that I got a magazine subscription in the mail to like I think it's just bow hunting, whatever um, magazine, and I don't really subscribe to many besides whatever you get with memberships. Uh, 
you've probably seen some changes in the how content is distributed. And uh, one of the things that Waypoint TV, which you and I are both a part of, one of their their sticks is that they used to produce TV. And now they're realizing, well, people aren't watching hunting shows on the typical cable channel anymore. Uh, there's no more. Um, I grew up with Tony Dean and Babe Winkleman. Uh, right. The uh, uh, I remember putting in the my VHS in and hitting the record as we went to church, so I could watch some fishing when I got home, and uh, um, yeah, and then got to actually meet and work with Tony Dean and his wife a, a couple of times. Just a local little celebrity in South Dakota. Just that that's what I knew of. And I and of course the Primos guys and whatever, but I grew up without cable, so that wasn't something I could ever see. But um just the local stuff. So we've seen that and the going from the how many can you kill shots can you get in a video to um now YouTube is where a lot of content video content is being produced and netflix and some of those areas but the uh, magazines are going to the wayside for the most for some except for you know so you got the bugle magazine looks very healthy and thick uh and as nwtf is such a or rmef is a pretty big organization so they're producing still lots of good content but what are you seeing in that change like what's what's some of that or what do you why do you think that changes is uh is occurring well yeah it's been really interesting to see um you you know from from a tv standpoint when i started working in outdoor television um around 2008 you know we filmed everything on big giant studio cameras that our camera guys would hike into the mountains and you know into the you know into into the himalaya well pakistan those mountains you know um from uh, up to alaska on doll sheep hunts um in the jungles um camera guys gotta be tougher than the hunter (laughs) oh they were tougher than the hunters no doubt no doubt (laughs) no doubt about that um and then you know we'd take them down whitewater rivers remote whitewater rivers and and film fishing and and take them into you know saltwater realms across the globe and and these big giant hundred and twenty five thousand dollar cam the lens costs more than it than uh you know it would cost to produce a youtube series now probably um so that has really changed because obviously as you know nowadays there are so many independent producers and the technology has advanced so much in in the camera and the editing software and everything that really somebody like you know you or i could go spend five thousand dollars on a on a on a camera and um and and some editing software and put together a series and launch it on youtube and um and put a show out there so um it's it's the the, you know the tv side of things is wide open and um it's it's still difficult though to get distribution and to make money on it and that's you know that's uh that's the the crux of the matter when it comes down to it is um, can you still attract sponsors and, and make a go of it and actually make some money doing it? Um, yeah, it's, and the market is now saturated with plenty of people carrying cameras into the woods. It's easier and cheaper for that no person, doubt. but yeah, I can see making money on that is, is, would be difficult when there's so much free content. I don't pay YouTube anything and I don't click on any ads in, on YouTube. 
So right. how do they make it? Obviously, it's the exposure there and the other ads and whatever else and subliminal messages that I'm sure I'm getting advertised to. But there's <laughs> – or or whatever hunting company clothing someone is wearing that in a roundabout way, just like Pittman-Robertson uh, funding, in a roundabout way, it gets back to the individuals. But you as a company owner, that money is not coming to you as much so i can see yeah that that would be a struggle and i've i've never just wanted to dive into the video that's not my passion i don't have the skill set either for camera work and it's not what i enjoy doing um i just like enjoy watching other people's stuff the audio is where i stick um yeah gotcha um yeah and then you know as, as far as the the print side of things um i guess the the when when outdoor life and I believe field and stream too went totally digital here a year or two ago. Um, that kind of seemed like, um, you know, the, the final, the final straw with, with the full move to digital content, because those were obviously two of the longest running most popular, largely distributed outdoor publications, on the market. And, um, when I saw that, I thought, okay, well that, that man, the final chip has fallen. Um, and as you mentioned, yeah, bugle with its resources still manages to put out a really good quality print magazine. Um, and there's still several of them out there, but, um, yeah, again, uh, the move to digital content, which is right at your fingertips. Um, but, uh, but I still, I still prefer print myself. I like to take a magazine into, into the wall tent and, um, and have something on paper to read myself. I do, I blog and I do read, you know, plenty of digital articles over the course of a year, but, um, but I'm kind of, uh, I guess I'm kind of a little bit, uh, chagrined that, that the print model is, is dying off. Cause I do, I still do like to have a hard copy in my hands myself. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. I get it. So, uh, speaking of kind of the tech changes and whatever else, what's been infiltrated in the uh, kind of the social media news, let's call it, uh, is the uh, trail camera issue in Utah. Neither of us live in Utah, but um, have you hunted there? No, I've never hunted in Utah. I've fished in Utah um, and, and poked around, and I actually went to college there for a couple of years. So I spent some time in Utah, but I've never hunted there. Um, I do, however, uh, represent a, an optics brand here in Montana that's based in Utah called black diamond optics. So, um, I talked to those guys a lot. I haven't had a chance to, to talk to them about the trail camera issue. Um, and I wasn't even aware of it till you brought it to my attention. So fill me in on that. What's going on. Yeah. So there's a now going to be a basically during the hunting season, they're not loud, um, which is not as bad as what Arizona passed and is going to be in effect, I want to say, June. Sorry, I got a large Arizona following, so I apologize to you guys. Uh, but that one is pretty rough. It is a. It says, uh, not quoting, but it says that you can't use a, a trail camera for the purpose or in the aid of, of hunting. So, um, so that effectively outlaws trail cameras basically. Yeah. And 
guys are still gonna put them in your yard to look at your feeders or whatever if or not in your feeders if you that's not allowed but um or just to see what's going around that's what i always had around my house when i had a few acres is look and see what's running around there um for the purpose of wildlife viewing that's allowed still but i think 99 percent of the hunters are using them for hunting purposes to have, have an idea is that is there elk or deer in the area are there what quality ones uh and and so yeah we've got that purpose for them but utah yeah is that's a pretty fresh thing and um there's a few people that are a lot of people i'm sure that are pretty upset about it but you you said that you don't use trail cameras you have one you've you've kind of been around them a little bit um because western hunting sometimes a little different then is a lot different obviously than whitetail tree stand hunting and that's where maybe those trail cameras start but i love using trail cameras for for finding elk and and seeing what kind of quality are in the area and when they're there and and that sort of thing i i usually a little bit more difficult to set up and then the uh cell cameras don't work quite as well unless sometimes you can find some places with good service but i love using them for elk hunting and and deer hunting but um as a non-user of them, what are your thoughts? Well, I guess, you know, and like you mentioned, I do, I do have one. And, um, I, a couple of years ago, I, I went and I put it out in a few spots. And, um, I guess the, the big thing for me is I rarely hunt the same area, uh, you know, twice. Um, there's, there's some spots that I'll, I'll return to. Um, but I would really like to bounce around and, you know, Montana is such a big state. We have so many different areas we can go to. I may hunt elk locally um, one season, and then another season I'll pick a mountain range and I'll just go put up my tent and go explore it. And um, yeah, I just, I, I, you know, I tend to cover a lot of ground, and and I I, I really like to hunt the country um, uh, more than than a specific animal, which um, you know a lot of hunters will will right. go. Uh, challenge themselves by by picking out a, a particular bull or buck and trying to pattern them and i i totally understand that uh that concept and and the game and 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 the uh the appeal of that but um that's just not really kind of how i hunt so trail cameras just don't really uh come into come into my repertoire i guess um and uh, as far you, as yeah what do you think of obviously there's some big changes in that tech of the cell cameras sending instant images. Uh, and some states, those are illegal. Some states they're not. As we increase this tech and our ability to see what's out there without us being there, what's your, what's your thoughts ethics wise and morally your ethics wise and, and your, your thoughts as to, is that something we should look at or, or, maybe just leave it off the table or what do you, how do we, how do we grow with the, the trends? Well, you know, I guess uh, we, we do need to be careful about incorporating too much technology into hunting. I think, um, I I'm personally just kind of an old school, an old school guy who takes an old school approach to it. Um, but, uh, yeah, as, I guess I don't have I don't have real really any issues with with trail cameras. Um, 
But if you're getting real-time data, you know, back to your phone on public land um, with with coordinates, and I, I just think there's a point where too much technology um, is it, it's a it's kind of a fine line. Um, I I think that you know hunting still should take place. Um, kind of in an old school manner it's an old school activity it's obviously um you know humans have been doing this for since we've been up on two feet and um and i kind of uh appeal to the to the approach of 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 heading into the woods and using your senses and um you know your your skill set that you've that you've developed um you know tracking um learning where animals tend to tend to tend to hide and hang out during certain times of days and certain times, um, over the season. And, um, yeah, to me, too much technology, uh, kind of spoils the, the, uh, the whole, uh, I guess the whole soul of hunting, if you will. The wonder, um, the wondering of what's out there and having to figure it out. It changes, changes that ability to changes how you, how we do that. For sure. For sure. And then, um, you know, then there's the, I, I guess the, the, uh, the, uh, the approach of, of when, when we get, uh, too many folks that, that are just paying big money to, to go take a particular animal and somebody else is then watching that animal for them and they just show up and pull the trigger, um, that, uh, that doesn't, uh, sit real well with me, I guess. And I know that in a lot of cases that, that, um, you know, there's, there's folks out there that are monitoring these animals for other people with, with a, with a, with a big checkbook too. Sure. Um, so it's a fine line and, you know, I, 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 I'm never one to tell anybody else what to do or how they should do things or, you know, how they, how they should approach their hunt. Um, but I guess for me personally, um, I guess I'm not really a proponent of trail cameras. Uh, so yeah, I, th- I think you got to be careful with all sorts of, all sorts of that technology. And, you know, I mean, that being said, I have a mapping software on my phone that I use to, to know where I'm at. And, um, you know, I don't use the compass and map anymore, uh, very often. So, so that's another piece of technology that, that I do use myself. So, you know, I don't want to judge somebody else for using some piece of technology when, when I have, uh, when I, when I use, uh, modern tools uh, right. to my benefit as well. So, <laughs> right. Where's yeah. the, where's the line in the sand there? It's not yeah. something you can really find. And there's some cool things too, like, uh, citizen science projects around use of trail cameras to, to help, uh, researchers. I know, um, South Dakota has tons, hundreds of cameras out that they, they put out. Uh, and they put the good cameras out so that they can collect data. And you think of the cost of that versus flying helicopters and the cost of putting staff and field in to observe this and that and the things you're going to catch. The research side of it, totally different deal. And obviously um, doesn't really fall under the same legal aspects. But in uh, the citizens' science portion of that would be kind of interesting if uh, I think Wisconsin or Michigan uh, does something like that where people, hunters, wildlife viewers can submit what they're finding 
with locations and and they can apply to be this in this project so that they can can submit the data and it just paints a bigger picture of what's going on out there Uh, i'm sure wisconsin and michigan who do have elk monitoring where their elk are and and uh trying to keep a keep tabs on that so but anyway let's move on from the trail camera that was just a little something i was curious about this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and tecovis is your stop for the best in western style tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer including men's and women's boots apparel hats bags and more all tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Um. But the uh, you you mentioned to me you had a deer gun story that that's worth uh, worth chat just a kind of a fun cool story so uh, tell us about that yeah so um, my grandfather was the the sheriff in um, uh, of Lincoln Lincoln County in Nebraska um, or in Lincoln Nebraska and um, he was uh, in office during the, the Charles Starkweather murders. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but, um, in, uh, in the late 1950s, one of the country's first spree killers was, uh, a guy named Charles Starkweather and his girlfriend, Carol Ann Fugate. And they killed, uh, 11 people, I think in Wyoming and Nebraska and maybe one of the Dakotas too. And, um, when, uh, when Charles Starkweather was apprehended, my uh, my grandfather was uh, was charged with keeping him in the uh, in the Lincoln County in the jail in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska, and uh, just a kind of a you know piece of our family lore and a, a tidbit about my grandfather, kind of what he was was known for. But uh, he was also the president of the National Sheriffs Association, and um, they presented him with a, a Browning Falling Block forty five seventy. Uh, rifle and it sat in my dad's gun safe up until when he passed in 2020 and um and i got my hands on it and the gun had never been fired and i kind of set a goal to to shoot a whitetail with it and uh i hunted with it uh last year a fair bit um on a mule deer and an elk hunt and and I didn't get an opportunity with that gun, 
Um, but this year I, I took it out in the whitetail woods one day and, um, uh, found a buck about, you know, 70 yards away, which was perfect for iron sight, single shot rifle. And, uh, and was able to shoot a buck with it. So, um, so that was pretty cool to, That's to take awesome. a, a deer. Yeah. Take a deer with a gun that had been in our family for 50 years and had never been fired. So, um, yeah, so that was cool. I really, I, I like hunting with our old family guns. You know, I carry my dad's old over under 12 gauge or my mom's old pump 20 gauge. And I, um, you know, I have my dad's old deer and elk rifles and, and my wife shot her first bull last year with one of my dad's guns the first year that we hunted when he wasn't around. So, um, that's awesome. I, just last weekend, a buddy and I were like, let's go shoot some rabbits. And we, we went to his safe and who he picked out is old octagon pump, uh, 22 Winchester. He carried that. I carried a little more modern Winchester with the, the safety that you just, you pull back and it clicks and it's got a little lever. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so we went rabbit hunting with that. I mean, I had the shotgun in the truck and uh, all kinds of other th- tools that would work much be- better, but we decided we're going to go, we're going to do this right and go try and shoot some rabbits. But <laughs> it was just one of those That's cool. fun little, all right, let's, let's do get out the old guns and, and mess around with it, which made that, made it really, really fun, a little challenging. Of course, you got iron sights on that and makes it fun. But also to what you're saying is that I, that what you, the, this story is the exact reason why I've decided and voted to never sell a single gun of mine. Right. And I know I don't have a whole lot in my safe that's worth a ton of money or they're not that great, but even the little ones, the even the ARs that I built and the um, the gun I bought for 500 bucks when I was 14 and I still hunt with it every single year, I mean, that's my gun. It's not worth a lot of money, um, but it's mine. And I'm sure my kid, my great my grandkid and whoever else I get down the line would be really appreciative of it. Uh, that, Hey, this was grandpa's gun. This was great grandpa's gun. And uh, I just try to think ahead as to see, I don't want to see those things disappear. We always regret selling some car we had. I hate to ha- right. sell some gun for a thousand bucks. Cause it's, it's worth a thousand bucks. A thousand bucks is going to disappear real quick, but that gun stick around and it, it's something that can be, be held. And that's, that's going in the will that that's what I've explained to my wife said, these do not get sold at all. Yeah. Even if our whole family's gone and, and no one to give it to, <laughs> give it to a friend. They don't, they, yeah, uh, that's, they don't that's get good sold. advice, but well, yep. that's really, that's a neat story. Just, uh, um, I mean, challenge yourself. What was it? Open sites as well, or what? It's uh, an open, yeah. Octagon barrel, open sight, uh, 4570 single shot. Oh, awesome. And, um, yeah, I mean, a really a, effective cartridge. I, I, I really want to try to, to shoot an elk with it, um, in the, in the coming years. Um, cause there's a lot, I've got, you know, guns with long range scopes on them and, and the whole nine yards. And, and, um, you know, over the last few seasons in particular, I've, I've shot, um, um, this last season, notwithstanding, but I've, I've shot, um, my elk during rifle season in, in dark timber at really close range. And, um, 
you know, an, an iron sight gun in, the, in that situation is, is actually an advantage. Um, and, uh, it's just a really effective old cartridge. Obviously that was a, um, <clears throat> a cartridge that uh, was responsible for a lot of Buffalo lying on the ground. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, within, uh, you know, a hundred yards is, is kind of my cutoff point with that, with that gun. Um, I practiced with it enough at the range to know if I get too far beyond that range, it starts getting a little squirrely for me. Um, but I don't want to put a scope on it. it it's going to stay the way it is. And, yeah. um, yeah, as long as you keep it within the, the parameters that the, the rifle's designed for, it's a really effective hunting tool still has been for uh, that cartridge was developed. Like, I don't know that, uh, 1870, right? Something yeah. like that. We 4570, talk- right? Yeah. We talked about that exact same thing and we were looking at that late 1800s, early 1900s technology and like, still used it's the exact same oh yeah it's the exact yeah. same there's there's different actions and a few improvements here and there but it's generally the same thing same cartridge i mean <laughs> and yep. still a very effective thing i mean look at the 30 out six of something from 1906 and yeah same cartridge same exact yep. exact thing and a very effective effective round and those yeah, and, and and I reload as well, and those old cartridges are so easy to reload, um, and the newer ones are, I find much more finicky and fickle to oh, dial really? in. Yeah, um, you know, I have a I have a three hundred rum um, that I acquired several years ago, and uh, and I've had a heck of a time getting that thing to to shoot properly, um, whereas my old guns, my my uh, my old 300 Win Mag that I've had since I was 18 years old, I shoot the same Nosler partition bullet bullet out of it that I always have. Same powder, same load, um, and it's the same with that 4570. Is like loading a a handgun cartridge. You dump the powder in, put the bullet on top, and it shoots straight every time. Um, and yeah, they're just foolproof. And my dad's collection of hunting rifles. Um, you know, are all from the sixties, seventies, those Rugers, those Winchesters, and those are such great hunting rifles. They've got smooth actions. They've got crisp triggers. They all sit on, you know, nice walnut stocks and they're, they're beautiful guns and they're, they're dinged up and they're dented and they're scratched from years of use. Uh, but they're, they're really functional. And, um, you know, the old adage, they don't make them like they used to, but, uh, those, uh, American made rifles, though, some of them were made in Japan, of course, but the American companies in the, the sixties and, and seventies just made really good quality guns. And I'm fortunate that I have a, a small collection of them. Cause I just love those old rifles. Yeah. And I, um, for the post for this podcast, I'll have to put uh, a picture of that, that stock for that. 30 odd six, my, my grandpa carved me a stock and got nice fish scaling. Um, just found the block of wood and he made all my brothers, uh, these stocks. And, uh, it would be nice if I put like, uh, the floor plate in it so I could give me a little bit more room, but grandpa struggled to get it down thin enough. So I think it only holds like three rounds comfortably. That fourth one just doesn't want to go down because the wood's so thin right there but it uh it's gorgeous 
and I just don't hunt with it. I take it off and I have the synthetic on just because I beat the crap out of my stuff going through oak brush. It's like, I can't shoot that. That's got to just stay <laughs> right in there. But someday I'll put it on there, get a different gun and just hang it on the wall or do something there. And, and cause it, I'm six, seven and my, my grandpa made it Jeez. for me so that, <laughs> so that it fit me. So it's a longer stock than what you're going to find in a store. So it, Actually, it's kind of uncomfortable to shoot because I'm not used to a longer st- stock that fits. <laughs> but it, uh, yeah, I made it long enough for me and beautiful, nice butt plate on it, so it's comfortable and just a really beautiful gun. With a he carved in a, a mule deer with a mountain scene on the on the stock and just just gorgeous. So I would love. Wow, that's to, really cool. Yeah, so that's one of those things that that's worth money too, but it, it's never going to be sold. Just one of those things to again hand down to. Um, one of my boys or both my boys down the road, the, the one's not, uh, in the world yet. He's, he's doing March, but the, the other one for sure is showing a little interest in some, what we're doing and what I'm doing in the outdoors. So it's been, that's been fun. Cause he's three. How old are your kids? Uh, our son is seven and our daughter's four. Awesome. So yeah, my son, um, you know, he, uh, he shot his first his first BB gun here this year. So, um, yeah, he's definitely interested. He's, he's really interested in fishing. Both of them are, my daughter's very interested in fishing too. They, they love to go fishing. Um, so that's been a lot of fun and, um, you know, you never know with hunting. We'll see. Um, there's definitely, uh, uh, interest there. Um, as, as far as, uh, what he says, but, um, hopefully he, uh, hopefully it's something that he likes to do. Um, it's, you know, here in Montana, like, like where you live, uh, it's a little different than the rest of the country, right? Like uh, uh, most of the, most of the people still here hunt. Um, I think some, something like 25% of the population in Montana buys a hunting license every year. So, um, it's something that their peers do. So then they're more, they're more apt to, to show an interest in it. So, um, yeah, I, I hope that uh, that I get to go out and, and uh, set up the wall tent with my kids, and we can do it all as a family. My wife is now is now hunting. She's accompanied me for since you know for over a decade, and then and then last year she decided that she wanted to go ahead and try to shoot an animal herself, and and um, fortuitously shot a bull opening weekend. <laughs> um, and and part of the reason why she did that was. Um, was was so that our daughter would see yeah you know mom hunts too um because it's really something that we we do want to uh participate in together and uh and also you know we subsist primarily on on wild game for our that's where our red meat comes from you know we get a we get an elk every year fortunately uh with the opportunities that we have here in montana and um and, you know, often an antelope and a couple of deer and, um, we butcher them ourselves and, and that, uh, that's our meat for the year. So, uh, yeah, hopefully my kids will, will buy tags and, and take some of the pressure off me because, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm 46 now and, you know, I still, uh, stay in shape so I can hunt hard and, but, uh, you know how it is. There's no guarantees out there. And, uh, no. When the, the freezer's all riding on dad, it's a, it's a little stressful. So I'm, I'm fortunate that my wife is now hunting too. And, 
hopefully our kids follow the same path. Yeah. Cause you always want to, I'm sure you said your styles go check out new areas and cover a lot of ground and it's hard to have a sure thing then. So it's nice to, I was always, I lived in Colorado. I would always try and pick up one of those late season cow tags. Like, okay, here's my guarantee when I want to go have fun archery hunting. <laughs> so and if I don't shoot anything with my bow, then okay, I still, there's a cow coming. I'm sure I, I'm, pretty sure i can find a cow that shouldn't be too difficult right so, yeah i hear you um yeah you kind of need one of those aces in the hole yeah. um and uh yeah we tend to go hunt places um where you know you could take either a cow or a bull and uh and just to better our odds of, of filling the freezer um and i used to bow hunt a fair bit and i haven't been able to do that as much in recent in recent years but yeah, like you, that was that was kind of our uh, our, our fun season, you know, and um, to the point where I decided to start hunting with a recurve because I really didn't care if I killed one or not because yeah. I could always lean on the rifle later in the season. So that was a great way to see a lot of country and experience a lot of elk activity because uh, when hunting with a compound that uh, – that first elk that you see at 30 or 40 yards, um, probably going to end up on the ground. Right. And when you're hunting with a, with a trad bow, that's not the case. Getting a shot with a trad bow is really hard. Um, (laughs) but you get, you get to experience so much, um, you know, elk activity and you get so many chances and opportunities and you see so many different things, um, within that, you know, 50 yard zone. So you have so much cool interaction at close, close quarters with animals. Um, you just can't be, uh, hell bent on killing one. Cause in my experience, that's pretty hard to do with a, with a trad bow. I, there's a lot of folks out there that are more effective with them than, than I am, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, it's been a lot of fun to, to have a, a chance to go experience bow hunting and then, and then, okay, well, it's time to fill the freezer and you can pull the rifle out and go take a cow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're, uh, when you said you kids really like to do some ice fishing, I'm excited. We're going tomorrow to do some ice fishing, um, with my three year old. And oh, cool. Yeah, we're going to go see if we can't catch some bluegills and perch. That's what I'm really, oh, fun. yeah, every day from daycare, I pick him up. We start talking about ice fishing. So he's, really excited and we all of his little books that have anything to do with fishing is like is there ice fishing in there is there ice fishing in there so i'm awesome i'm super excited i gotta now we gotta see if we can't catch something that's why i'm chasing bluegills and perch see if we can't do it that way so i'm not i'm not much of a trout fisherman i for for the eating aspect i mean catching a trout on a fly rod is wonderful and i i love it got to do my first float trip uh, down the Colorado in 2020 ish, somewhere in there. Uh, and I had a riot, an absolute riot. It was so much fun. Um, but I sure like a lot of South Dakotans, I sure like a good walleye and a perch, <laughs> perch fishing. Well, yeah. And yeah. I, I'm with you. I, as I mentioned, I'm a, a fly fishing guide. So a lot of that is focused on catch and release for trout. Um, but personally, I really love to fly fish for pike. And we have some really good pike fishing around here. And I do, I do guide for pike on the fly a little bit as well. 
Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, pike are a great eating fish. Um, yeah. A lot of folks are kind of steer away from them because there's a, there's a belief out there that they're difficult to fillet, but they're really not once you get the hang of it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, they're really good eating. You know, they eat kind of like a walleye. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, and that funny you mentioned ice fishing because the first time I took my son, um, we went with a, a friend of mine who's an avid ice angler and, and, um, is a, you know, he's in the know and, uh, and my son, his tip up went down and, and my buddy and, and he, brought in a, uh, a 20 pound pike the first time he ever went. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So he was pretty ecstatic about that. And we cut it up and, and made, uh, a bunch of fish tacos and he shared them with kids at school and everything. So he got to be the, the hero of the day. <laughs> it's pretty oh, cool. Man, that's big fish. Uh, yeah. So moving on to a little more elk hunting, uh, I mean, it's kind of yeah. in the mix, but what, uh, tell me about your season. Well, so last year, my wife and I, have we started this tradition just two years ago when she decided that she wanted to, to try to shoot elk herself. So um, we've been going opening weekend down to a mountain range in southwest Montana where I used to hunt a fair bit. And then I kind of just steered away from it for no other reason other than to just kind of explore new country, as I mentioned. But um, so she and I went out... Uh, opening weekend and it was it was really busy which is to be expected it's a a popular kind of well-known mountain range but there's a lot of elk in there um and we just saw way more people than i ever have down there in the you know 12 odd some years i've been going down there and um so opening day we went into this basin where she had shot her bull the previous year and um we saw very little fresh elk sign and there was a hunter or two on every peak. It was, it was crazy how busy it was, but it was all mostly Montana plates and people out hunting hard and getting into the high country. So that was cool to see. Um, but we kind of needed to call an audible. So we went up and, and posted up on a, on a point where you could kind of glass the whole range and, uh, and stayed up there till dark and spotted, um, a bull and a couple of cows up on the other side on top of this switchback trail. And so we devised a plan to go up there an hour and a half or so before first light and get up there, be up there on top, um, right at shooting light. And so the next morning we, we got up early and we trekked up there and, um, and no sign of those elk. And, uh, so we dropped back down through a bunch of North facing timber and just hunted real slow through bedding timber and, uh, got really close to several really nice mule deer bucks, which was cool. That particular area is a, um, a permitted, uh, buck, uh, mule deer tag. So we didn't have that permit. So, um, you know, we just had to watch them, but it was really cool. And then, um, we, we jumped a bunch of elk and there was, there was a really nice bull in the group and I just couldn't get a good shot at him. And my wife, Lauren couldn't either. And then, um, we pushed several cows out of there and they were, they were so far back. We put on 20 miles that day and, um, yeah. And our windows to hunt are pretty short with, with the kids. 
Um, so, you know, we've, we've only got a weekend or maybe three days and, uh, we decided we just didn't have the time to go back in there. Um, and then that Monday morning we woke up and it had been raining and those roads out there are almost undrivable, um, when they get wet. So we decided to go try to hike up into kind of the edge of where we saw those elk and not hunt as deep. And we had to cut it off at 11 o'clock so we could get home to relieve my sister-in-law of our kids. And we couldn't even get up to where we wanted to go due to the road conditions. So we decided, all right, we'll go along. We'll turn around. We'll drive around the other side of the mountain range. There's a gravel road that parallels the mountain range. And we'll go try and fill a whitetail tag. So we went and we tried that and put a couple of hunts on and we didn't see any, didn't see any deer. And again, just a lot of hunters over there. And, um, we were actually, we'd called it and we were heading out at about 10 in the morning. We were going to, we were heading home and this little band of elk crosses the County road. It was a bull, three or four cows and a couple of calves. And they crossed the County road and they were on, they crossed over onto private land, but we were right on the edge of some state ground. And this other guy without a state plates hops out in the middle of the county road with his gun out. And, you know, we're watching this. My wife's filming it with her camera. Like, is this guy really going to pull the trigger here? And he was all excited and jumping up and down and hollering and, and, uh, Fortunately, he didn't pull the trigger, and he got in his truck and left. Wait, and at it, that point, but he was jumping up and down, excited, just because he saw one. I mean, or... well, well, I thought we thought he was going to pull the trigger. I mean, he was looking around. He actually asked me if you could shoot cows. Oh, so you know, here was a. This was your typical Yahoo, right? Who didn't yeah. read the regs and was on the verge of, uh, of doing something highly unethical and highly illegal. He was actually aiming down the County road at these elk that were still on private land, but he didn't, he didn't pull the trigger and, uh, and he ended up getting in his truck and, and he left and the elk, um, fortuitously crossed over and went up onto this chunk of state ground. And my wife was beat from the day before. And she said, you, you know, you just run up there and see if you can see if you can get one. And so I went and took off after them and they had actually crossed over back onto private land. And I watched them and they were paralleling the trail. And I went up and sat up over on the edge on the state ground to see what they were going to do. And for some reason they turned around and they came back towards me along the fence line. And I had to get up and relocate so I wouldn't get busted. And I was crouched down behind this little juniper tree and they went into this gully and I, I heard the fence, you know, I, I heard them run across the fence. I couldn't yep. see them, but I, I heard them cross the fence. So I popped up over at the edge of this little swale and they, they came out into the open on state ground and I was able to shoot one of the cows. And, um, you know, I, I cut her up as quickly as I could cause we were on a time crunch big time now. And, um, and I, I hustled a, a load back to the truck and uh, grabbed my wife and, and grabbed my, my big pack. And my wife's a real strong packer. And she came up with me and, and we loaded up the rest of the cow and we got it out of there. And, um, and yeah, we made it home in time. So <laughs> it was, uh, 
it was awesome it, the way it worked out. It was just a, a you know last second gift. One of those one of those times where you've you pretty much given up on the hunt, right? And then an opportunity falls right in your lap, and it's just a reminder that you can never you can never give up because you know up until the last second anything can happen. And there's been so many times in my life when that's the way that a hunt has panned out, um, where I've been able to fill a tag at the very last second. Yeah, I I definitely think of all kinds of sports analogies with that as well. Of uh, I try and and I'm thank I was thankful enough to have a wonderful coach, um, actually my same one high school through college that really instilled work ethic and and the mental game of wrestling and how to and I I thanked him after my mountain goat hunt in 2019. I texted him on my drive home and said. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for teaching me mental toughness. I needed it. This was the hardest thing I've ever done. <laughs> and um, that uh, understanding of anything can happen at the last minute. I mean, you can you can pin a returning state champ. You can do that over and over. Things happen. And just having that little understanding that it can change in a second, just in that little whatever. An animal makes a mistake and you're there to, capitalize on it of some sort so i try and keep that that mindset as well of of uh, uh something that a lot more people can relate to with sporting analogies it, it just makes sense to to me right yep yep you just gotta stick with it to the bitter end and um yeah i'm sure like you there's been a lot of hunts where i've been completely discouraged and uh you know haven't found any animals haven't found any any real reason for optimism. Um, but, uh, but you got to remember you're, you're, you're out there just, and, um, don't overlook all those little things and then just, uh, yeah, stick with it. Cause anything can happen at any moment. Even when you're bear hunting in 90 degree weather and <laughs> in, yeah. in September, but then all of a sudden, just while you're out elk hunting in September, you're like, it's like 90 degrees out and that big black bear is just running through the open. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Running through the high happen? desert. Um, <laughs> there's always kind of those weird things of what are you doing here? <laughs> and that always happens yeah. with deer and elk as well. Uh, yeah. In fact, the, the, the largest bull I've ever shot, I shot on a desert mule deer hunt in late August in Oregon and um, had no inkling of seeing an elk on that trip. Right. Like it wasn't even in my, it wasn't even in my mind. And, uh, it was midday and my buddy and I were hiking out in 90 degree weather. And, um, we walked right up on this lone bowl out in the sagebrush by himself. Nice, big, mature six point. And, uh, I arrowed him and he, he fell underneath a shade tree, which it was towards the end of our hunt. And he actually was fairly close to the truck. And, um, yeah, we were able to get him out and get him on ice and, and, uh, made it out of there. And I always, I always reflect on that hunt whenever I am starting to get discouraged. Like, well, you know, you, you shot a six point bull in the middle of the desert uh, under, under unbelievable circumstances. So anything can happen out there to your point. Right. I'd love to hear another elk story, but, uh, we're at 50 minutes right now. So um, let's wrap it up and I, but I would like you to review real quick some of those, those different things you got in the, in the irons you got in the fire there. So your, 
um, your blog, your uh, podcast, and just advertise to us. Tell us real quick what you got all got going on, how people can dive into that content. Yeah, well, our, our podcast is uh, called The February Room, and that is on the Waypoint Podcast Network, and we have a, uh, a website for that as well, which is thefebruaryroom.com. Um, and then our, uh, our uh, rod distribution business is called CD Fishing USA, which is short for Composite Developments, the parent company, which is in its, uh, celebrating its 40th year in New Zealand. Um, and we have a blog on that site and, um, and all of our, uh, our rods and reels are on there. Um, I have a personal website called just justincarnop.com where I post, um, some of the articles that I published and, um, you know, some stuff from the video days and, uh, Instagram is at February room and, uh, at Justin Carnop. All right. Just wrote all those down. I'll have them in the the show notes below, so people can just click, make it a little easier. So, well, but, well, great, Clint. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. We kind of scheduled and rescheduled. Um, we both had all kinds of whatever's come up, so I'm glad we had a chance to talk. And uh, another great connection, which is the Waypoint Waypoint community. So uh, that's been uh, worth my while. How long have you been with them? Uh, we signed on with them just in October. Yeah. And I was probably August, September and it's been kind of cool folks like you just reaching out and I've been reaching out to a few others and it's been, been a wonderful thing to, to connect. So, um, there's a, there's a lot of, a lot of really good, uh, yeah, it's been for us too. Yeah. A lot of good content creators and podcasters and video and different things that are not your typical, uh, giant meat eater companies they're the ones that are creating some wonderful content and people you can relate to so it's uh um there's some good stuff there but well justin i I thank you for this thursday morning interview and we'll we'll uh it's nine o'clock now so we can get rolling with our day you bet man bring your kid out fishing sometime we'll we'll take you out here on our local rivers or or go find some pike or something so that'd be fun yep that'd be fun all right all righty we'll see you Take care now. This is God's country.